So for the past few weeks, we've been talking about a very simple subject, getting to know God. I mean, what could be easier than getting to know God? And so Pastor Chris has been walking us through uh, what he's been calling the five stages of faith. And he's been dealing a lot with the fifth one, which is paradox. And so if it's okay with you this morning, I want to hang out in the mystery. Is that all right with everybody? Can we hang out in mystery this morning? All right. There's a professor who's world-renowned, highly respected, sought after. Anytime anyone can get in this class, as soon as enrollment opens up, it's filled to capacity. There are people who travel from great distances whenever there's a lecture series or whenever there's an opportunity to hear what this professor has to say because this professor for two and three hours without notes, can effortlessly and passionately go everywhere between philosophy and physics and somehow manage to keep people awake. No one falls asleep. Everyone is leaning in as if they're watching a movie. They're just wrapped attention on everything this professor has to say. And so the professor is standing in front of a packed crowd, standing room only, for two hours going on about the nature of existence and the nature of our universe and the ever-expanding cosmos. And it's so passionate. And it's so amazing that, believe it or not, people are sitting with tears in their eyes as they hear about nature and about life and about existence. And just when you think this professor is getting ready to reveal the very nature of the cosmos, is getting ready to unravel something that no one else has ever been able to explain. She sits on the desk and says, are there any questions? And of course, immediately, at least a dozen hands are raised. People cannot wait to ask questions. The aisles are filled, and so they bring microphones down a few of the aisles, and person after person walks to the microphone with a question. I, I need to know. What does all of this mean? I, I need to know why we're here. I need to know what the very nature of life is. And the professor listens to every question, nodding her head, smiling, reflecting on everything that's being asked. And to every single question, after a pause, she looks at the person says, that's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> so the first time, I don't know. Okay, wow, that's honesty. I appreciate the candor there. Second person, third person. At least a dozen people asking these thought-out questions. They've traveled for miles. They've been waiting for the chance to be in the room with this obviously brilliant person. And to every single question, she simply responds, I don't know. Now, here, here's what I know. I guarantee that in that moment, a lot of people left that room deflated. They thought they were going to leave with something. They, they thought they were going to get something out of it because there are three words in our language that we avoid at all costs. And those three words are, I don't 
No. The only time we wield those words is when we're throwing somebody else under the bus. Who, who didn't do this project? Oh, it was Bob. I, I don't know. I, don't ask me. Ask Bob. I don't know. I had nothing to do with it. Sorry if there's a Bob in the room. It's always Bob that gets thrown under the bus. We don't like to say, I don't know, unless it gets us off the hook for something. Everything else, we want to know. We need to know. Some of you in this room don't even like surprise parties because you need to know. If you're going to surprise me, put it on the calendar. Because I want to make sure my hair looks good. I want to make sure I'm wearing the right outfit. You can't pop up from behind the sofa on me. I need to know. We are terrified of not knowing. And so we study, we listen, we learn, we come to church. But can I tell you a, a secret that's really not all that secret? We don't know much of anything, if we know anything at all. For instance, I'm going I'm to walk through a couple of things that we used to know. We used to know that the earth was the center of our solar system. We used to know that. That was common sense. Of course, the earth is the center of our solar system. And then people like Copernicus, and then echoed by a man named Galileo, said, well, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. I get it, and this is, this is, under, this is it's understandable that you would come to this conclusion, but we actually believe that, that the sun is the center of our solar system. And do you know what we did with this information? We almost killed Galileo. This is true. The church marked Galileo a heretic and were this close to giving him the death penalty. Can you imagine this? For raising your hand and saying the sun is actually the center of our solar system. We almost killed this poor man for it. Fortunately, we spared his life. However, he spent the remainder of his days on house arrest. This is true. We used to know that the earth was the center of our solar system. We don't know that anymore. Here's another thing that we used to know. Doctors used to know that smoking can help with pregnancy. It can curb appetite. It can keep the birth weight down. Do you know this? And you know how doctors used to present this information? They'd walk into the room smoking. So, Nancy... You're six months along, I recommend smoking. So go buy a pack of camels today. We used to know that smoking would help pregnant women. Now, not so much. We think we know. Wow, I am like clipping up here, I'm sorry. The truth of the matter is we don't really know all that much. And let me make this statement this morning. This is hugely important. There's a danger in needing to know because it limits our capacity for wonder. It limits our capacity to be amazed. It limits our capacity for connection with God and with other people. There's a fascinating story in the New Testament. It's in John's Gospel. You should read it. It's John chapter 9. Honestly, you could spend weeks just diving through all the little nuggets in John chapter 9. In the story, Jesus and his disciples are walking along. And they come across a blind man who's begging for money. And the disciples ask Jesus what seemed to be a very common sense question. They look at Jesus and say, Rabbi, 
Why is this man blind? And they don't allow Jesus to just answer that question. They give him the the categories. Is it because he sinned? Or is it because his parents sinned? Jesus, why was this person from birth, from their first breath, blind? Was it their sin? Or was it their parents' sin? And Jesus, like the professor, sits and says, you know, neither. Neither of those categories. It's not just that you're wrong, it's that you just don't even understand what categories we're dealing with. This person is not blind because of something they did wrong or something that their parents did wrong. Now, this is why this is important. There was a common understanding about the way things worked in that day. If someone had a deformity, if someone was ill, if someone was broken in body in any way, shape, or form, it was probably an indication of wrongdoing in their history or their family's history. That perhaps something their great-grandparents did cursed the family so much that this child was born with a deformity. This was a common understanding about the way things work. And so we can shake our heads at the disciples, but it makes sense that they would come to these conclusions, and yet Jesus looks them in the eyes and says, fellas, you got it all wrong. It has nothing to do with something this man did wrong. It has nothing to do with an error on his family's part. Something is getting ready to happen with this man that is going to reveal the glory of God. And so Jesus does something interesting. He, he comes to the man and he says, would you like to see? Which, anybody turning that down? No, I'm good. <laughs> this is working out for me. Thanks. He says, of course. And so Jesus spits into the dirt. Makes mud in his fingers and smears it in this man's face. And then to add insult to injury, says, go find the pool and wash your face, and when you do, you'll see again. So the man does, as is stated, so can you imagine this blind man? You've seen this man your whole life begging on the side of the road, and now he's walking around with mud in his eyes trying to find a pool. But he makes it to the pool, he washes his face, and lo and behold, this man can now see. And so he's walking through the town, and the people in the town are saying, isn't that the blind guy who always asks us for money? And they're like, no, it can't be him. He's walking around. He can see. It's not possible. And so people are whispering, and they're nudging each other. And finally, this man says, okay, listen, it is me. It actually is me. And so here's what they do. They go grab the investigators. They take him to the Pharisees, and they say, do you remember this man who was blind? Well, guess what? It's the Sabbath, and somebody healed him. This is a theological no-no. Jesus broke two things that day. He made mud. He made a kind of medicinal substance on the Sabbath when no work should have been done, and then he healed someone on the Sabbath on a day when no healing is allowed to take place. And so when the Pharisees hear this, they are beside themselves. But while some of them are standing and saying, whoever did this is of the devil, 
The other part of the group is thinking, well, how in the world is this possible? We've never seen someone with blind eyes have their eyes opened. And so they asked the man, what happened to you? I, I, I don't know. And they said, where is the man that did this? And I would imagine the blind man said, I haven't seen him. So it's a little, a little Bible joke. But um, tsh, all right, you're welcome. Haven't seen him. Um, and so they go around and they're asking more questions. Do you know where this man is? And finally they find the, the formerly blind man's parents. And they say, is this your son? And they say, that's my son. And they say, why can he see? And they say, um, why don't you ask him? He's the one who was blind. And so they get back to the blind man again, and they say, how is this possible? How could this have happened to you? He says, I don't know. And so they ask this question, what do you think of this man, Jesus? Do you think he's a sinner? Do you think he's evil? And the man replies this, I don't know. I don't know if he's evil. I don't know if he's a saint. I don't know if he's God himself, but this morning, I woke up just like every other morning, every other day of my life. <clears throat> but today, right now, I can see. I can't give you the formula. I can't tell you how all this works. I don't know how the stars align. I don't know if it's magic. I don't know if it's a trick. I don't know if it's going to hold up tomorrow. But in this moment right here, right now, today, I can see. I can't give you the backstory. I can't give you all the figures. I, I, I can't tell you how it all shakes out. I, I don't know that, but to me that doesn't matter because I was blind and now I see. And you would have thought that in that moment the Pharisees would have been teary-eyed, hugged this man and say, thank you for sharing your story with us. But no, they're not content. So they track they track down more people, and they're asking more questions, and they want to know how Jesus could have done this. Clearly, Jesus is a sinner, and the blind man, who's no longer blind, says, well, I don't know, because if he was such a wretched, filthy, broken sinner, how could he have done this for me? And this is the Pharisee's response to this man. Well, how would you know? Because you yourself were born in total sin. Look at you. You were blind an hour ago. How do you have any right or any authority? Where did you get your degree? Where did you study to be able to tell us, the educated, the ones who know about God, the ones who have studied the law, the ones who people come to with all of their questions, and we provide the answers? How dare you and how could you even attempt to tell us who Jesus is? And then there's this side conversation that happens. Jesus goes to the man and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Which is the way he described himself. And the man who was no longer blind said, I, I don't know, I would love to meet him. And Jesus says, you're looking at him right now. And the blind man falls and worships him. And then there's an exchange that happens that is the centerpiece of this whole entire story. It's right here. Jesus responds, I entered this world to render judgment, and that's key, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see 
that they are blind. I came to give sight to the blind, but even more than that, there's something that's more significant to that. Those who think they see so clearly, I came to show them that they don't see what they think they see. And then the, the Pharisees respond, are you saying we're blind? Once again, just completely shocked at the boldness of somebody who would have the audacity to tell them something. And then here's Jesus' response. If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. Move to the next one. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Here's why this story is so rich and so beautiful. We see three layers of blindness. The first are the disciples who have held an assumption since their childhood about certain people and about God. That God is the kind of God who gives people illnesses based on their performance or their performance of their family. And so Jesus heals the blindness of his disciples right then and there. That's not how God works. He pulls the veil off of their eyes. And then Jesus heals a man that is physically blind. But the most significant part of this is that Jesus looks at a group of people who are the experts, who know everything there is to know about their tradition and about their religion, whom the people respect highly. And he tells them essentially this. There's a kind of blindness that's worse than not being able to see. Because at least if you're blind, your other senses can be heightened. And at least if you're physically blind, you are aware of your limitations. You know where your limits are. But there's a blindness that's worse than physical blindness. And it's the blindness that needs to know everything. It's the blindness that thinks that all of your conclusions, all of your assumptions about the world, all of your beliefs about God are completely accurate. And that's the kind of blindness that is dangerous because you don't even realize you're blind. You don't even realize that you're stepping in front of danger because you are not aware of the fact that you are blind. And this story teaches us something. It's easy to poke at the Pharisees from a distance. They always come up in the stories when we need somebody to bag on and we need an example to show how stupid someone can be or how evil or wicked someone can be. But that's not what this story is about. Can we be honest just for one second? Somewhere within all of us, in certain categories of our lives, there's a Pharisee who's holding tight to the knowledge that we've acquired about something. There's a belief system about God that we were given as children. There's a theology that we hold about the nature of how things work. And Jesus reveals to us the danger of clutching on to those assumptions, the danger of believing that we need to know. Here is what God does as in this story. God is always pulling the rug out from under us. The moment we think we have it figured out, the moment we think we have chapter and verse, the moment we think we understand how it works, the rug gets snatched out from under us 
And it feels like we have to start from scratch. Here's why we're afraid of not knowing. Because we need familiarity. If all of our lives were just constantly shifting and changing and we couldn't count on anything, that would just be chaos. And we wouldn't be able to manage. So we need structure. We need things to be organized in a certain way. We need to be able to hold on to some assumptions that if I sit down in this chair, it's going to hold me. Or one plus one equals two. We need to be able to know things. But, but, here's the other part of this. Familiarity often leads to boredom and ultimately can lead to contempt. And we see this in our relationships. You know when a lot of relationships, whatever they might be, family, a romantic, friendship, you know when a lot of these relationships start to turn? Is when people just assume that they've figured the other person out, that there's nothing else to know, that they've heard all of the stories, that they know all of the backstory, that they know everything that's going on inside the mind of that person, been there, done that, I've heard it before. And you know this is true when you do this. When somebody, Uncle Joe, starts to tell that famous Thanksgiving story again, and you're like, oh, I know, uphill, both ways, no shoes. I get it, Uncle Joe. You know what that is? It's I'm too familiar we see this with teenagers and their parents. Oh, I get it, Mom. Okay, what, I've heard it before. I know what you're going to say. I can finish your sentence for you. Just leave my room, please. But something crazy happens sometimes in life. Like you're sitting around a table, and Grandma Ethel is telling her stories, and the, as if nothing ever happened. She's just like, oh, and then there was that time when I stole that car and went to Vegas. And you're just like eating, you're like, whoa, wait, 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 Grandma, Ethel, back it up, back it up. You did what and went where? Oh, yeah, I stole that car, and we went to Vegas, and, and we, got, we ran short on gas, so we went to the gas station, we, we stole some gas, too. I think I even snagged a couple bags of chips. I'm not proud of it, honey. I'm just telling you how it is. And in that moment, you realize something about Grandma Ethel. First, she's awesome. Second of all, you realize I didn't really know Grandma Ethel all that much. Familiarity sometimes leads to boredom, and then boredom leads to confusion, and then confusion leads to contempt. And so this is what we do with our relationships. If we only knew that there's so much more to everybody's story, that no one is as cookie-cutter as they seem, that no one is as average and mundane as they come across when we've been with them for an extended period of time. Well, if that's true for our human relationships, how much more true is that for God? The Gospel of John opens up with the very nature of existence. The word that organizes the universe became flesh and walked among us. And this is how the story should have gone. And when God put skin on, everybody around him marveled at the amazingness of it all. But that's not how John's gospel starts. He says he came to his own, and they received him not. That God in skin was walking around people, and nobody got it. People rejected him. People would say things like, 
Joseph's son, the carpenter? No way. Nope. But here's the thing, even about Jesus, even after Jesus is performing miracles and gathering a following, and when he stands on a mountainside, crowds form. Did you know this? Even his own disciples. As many times as Jesus talked about resurrection, as many times as Jesus talked about all the things he was going to do, when Jesus was killed on the cross, the disciples hung it up and went home. Well, I guess that's it. I thought this was going somewhere, but... I guess not. It was only the ladies who came to the tomb to discover the risen Lord. By the way, it's always the ladies who know. Fellas, just let's be honest about it. Let's, get, let, let's just let's lean toward the ladies. They always know, okay? You can clap for that. It's all right. The ladies always know. But it is only in hindsight that scriptures like this exist. In Christ, all of the fullness of God dwelled in a human body. Nobody saw that when Jesus is walking around. They wouldn't even accept Jesus as what they thought the king should look like, let alone what God is, because he didn't fit in their categories. He didn't fit in what they had been taught. He didn't fit in the scriptures that they had read leading up to this. And so they rejected him. The people who were once singing his praises are some of the same people who said, crucify him. Kill him. He's not what we thought he was. And yet only in hindsight, looking back, can we say, in Christ, everything that is God dwelled in a human body. Everything. God does not sit neatly in categories that we have built or we have designed. And God doesn't fit neatly into the things that we are handed as children or even grow into as adults. But there's something even more amazing than that. We always ask these questions. Why is there so much suffering in this world? And for a lot of people, that is the very point where our belief and our faith starts to dissolve. If there was a loving God, why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much hurting? Why are so many people miserable? Why do things go from bad to worse if there's a loving God and so we walk away? And we should ask those questions. We should wonder why the state of the world is what it is. But how often do we ask this question? Why is there so much goodness in the world? Why are there people who do things for others with no expectation of anything in return? We should ask why some parents leave their children. We should ask that question, and we should be horrified by that. But do we ever ask, why is it that some people adopt, receive, and love children that they have no responsibility for. We should ask why people hurt, why there's hatred, why there's anger, and why there's racism, but how often do we ask why people do things selflessly, 
Why would someone dive into a river to rescue a stranger risking their own life? That doesn't make sense with our understanding of evolution. It doesn't make sense with our own need to survive. When people go against the grain of what is normal to do something on behalf of a stranger or even an enemy, why don't we stop and wonder why that is? 1 John says this, No one has ever seen God. We do this. We, we ask, you know what, if I would believe I would be able to have some kind of faith or I would be able to make it to tomorrow if I could just see God and ask God some questions. If God really wanted to be known and loved, why wouldn't God just reveal himself? Why wouldn't God just show up and speak to me? Why wouldn't God just care enough to be right in front of my face? You know what the second part of that verse says? Go ahead and put it up. But if we love each other, God lives in us. And his full love is brought to full expression in us. So I would say when we're in our darkest moments of doubt or fear or struggle and we want God to show up, God already has. If we're begging and pleading somewhere in our mind, if we could just see the face of God, I would submit that we already have. Because wherever we see love, wherever we see goodness, wherever we see selflessness and generosity, we are seeing the very face of God. But it's a mystery. Because God looks like the person sitting next to you this morning. That doesn't fit in a neat category because you know that person's not perfect, especially if you rode with them today. You might have fought with them on the way here. I get it. When we're done with this. I'm talking. Oh, praise the Lord. How are you? Good to see you. Oh, hi. Hi. Yeah. I get it. Listen, I get it. But that's where the mystery lies. That the very essence, the very goodness, the very love of God is a spark that exists in each and every one of us. And if we just spent a little bit more time leaning into that mystery, think about what would change. What would racism be if we got a hold of that vision? How could we possibly categorize people by the culture or their color of their skin? There would be no, it would be unfathomable. What would homophobia be if I looked across at another person and saw the very divine spark of God, God's self, living and resting inside of them? How could we possibly live that way? How could I possibly look across at another person from another religion and feel any sense of superiority if I really believed that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in each and every one of us. How could I possibly judge and categorize people? If we really want to lean into the full mystery and the goodness of God, we need to sit with that for a minute. You are a godly mystery 
And so is the person sitting next to you. So is the person in your office building that you don't like all that much. You know what happens when we get comfortable with not knowing? When we open up our hands to the mystery of life all around us? We let go of that fear. We let go of that pride. And we open our hands to wonder. We open up ourselves to, to the capacity to be amazed by a conversation, by a sunrise, by a song. We open ourselves up to marvel at the stuff that we think is boring all around us because it's become all too familiar and God is whispering in every interaction, in every rainstorm, in every selfless act. We have this feeling, this desire to need to know. What if? We let go and embraced the mystery. I mean that metaphorically, but I also mean that literally. When we embrace another person we think we have all figured out, we are embracing the very mystery of God. What would that do for our relationships? What would that do for our community if we really bought into that? I said that most of the people left the professor that day disappointed. But there were a few people that stayed in the crowd, sitting there with tears in their eyes because they had an awakening. If this person who is so confident, who is so comfortable, who is so passionate with everything that they've talked about, if this person who has seen things that I'll never be able to imagine can be so comfortable with not knowing, what does that mean for me? The few people that remained realized that the real stuff of life is not in having it all figured out. It's embracing the mystery. I don't need to know everything. I just know that I used to be blind. Now I see. 